Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, will you help us in these moments to focus upon you and the glory of the Lord Jesus, who is glorious. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, it is, it's clear that the Apostle Paul didn't go to seminary where I went to seminary. <laughs> he didn't have the same homiletics professors I had. Homiletics is where they teach you how to preach. They try to teach you how to preach. And they gave us uh, <clears throat> forms of how we were to do it that was acceptable in, in those classes. And uh, they said, look, when you get out in churches, preach however you, you want to, but while you're here, this is how you're going to do it. And uh, some of it, when I describe it to you, you may see, might have carried over a little bit. Uh, we, we were taught, you have, a, you have an introduction, and then... Uh, Two or three points usually, maybe, maybe more. On each point, uh, you support it fully from the Scripture. You do the exposition of Scripture. Uh, you, don't, you don't put into Scripture anything. You pull out of the Scripture what it is teaching. And you illustrate uh, through your sermon and so on. And before the conclusion then you do an application and uh, apply 
the scripture that you have been preaching on. Well, the reason I say Paul uh, didn't learn where I learned was because uh, he basically does just the opposite in this passage. And I I recognize that uh, this was one letter, and so he had already done some exposition and some teaching prior to how he starts chapter 2. But what we see at the beginning of chapter 2 is the application. And he hits it hard. He brings it home. It's great. But then as you move further into the chapter, you see why and what that applies to. Why? Why are we to act that way? And how are we to act that way. And he explains it by talking about the nature of Christ and his work. And so we're, we're going to work our way through in, in the way Paul did. I'm setting aside the things that I learned, okay? And, uh, and we'll look at the application first and then see uh, how we are to go about doing that. First of all, and, and if, you're, uh, if you look at the outline, it might seem a little strange, I've called it the unnatural application of the death of Christ. Now, I think it it's, makes perfect sense, the application does. In that way, it is natural. But what's unnatural is that it doesn't come naturally for us. It is against the way we are typically going to act. And so, in essence, what he's about to tell them they are to do is really the opposite of what's going to come naturally outside of Christ. Verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection uh, and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He had just told them, I would just want to remind you, we, we looked at last week, he had just told them that in verse 27 of the previous chapter, Uh, that they are to be in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we we looked at that last week and how that applies. And so really, in in a way, he's continuing with that application uh, and that encouragement. And he's about to tell them how they can achieve that, why they should and how they can achieve it. So when Paul says, if there is any encouragement, it could better be translated, since there is encouragement, or because there is encouragement. The way it's translated, if there is any encouragement, kind of seems like doubt. It will, you know, if there happens to be any encouragement, then do these things. But really, I think the better translation is, since these things are true, here's what you are to do. 
And when he says any encouragement in Christ, is there anything that is more encouraging than being in Christ? That would be the question. Think about it. What, in, in essence, the, the reason being, if, uh, if we're in Christ, no matter what is going on in our life, we have peace with God. And when you have peace with God, it puts everything that's going on in our life into its proper perspective. So, that's the first thing, the encouragement that he used the term comfort from love, that, that word comfort. We've talked about this many times, uh, and I only bring up the, the Greek word because it's, uh, we, we've, we've talked about this before, paraklesis, and it's the, it, it means comfort, but it means coming alongside of, and it is the same term that is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the comforter. So there he, he talks about that, if there is that. And then he, he talks about participation in the Spirit, fellowship. And the word there for fellowship, again, another Greek term you may be familiar with, koinonia. So he's saying if there's that kind of a fellowship, that intimacy with the Holy Spirit, and then he talks about affection and sympathy. You put those together, it's tender mercies, and it's tender mercies that come up from the very seat of our emotions. They are in there, not something we conjure up, but because of Christ Jesus being in us. That's where that comes from. So he continues on, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that was our verse of the year in 2019. Do you remember anything before last year? It's hard to remember anything, isn't it? That's why I wanted to remind you uh, back in 2019. And so we we uh, looked at that, we preached on it a number of times and studied it. It was a great verse of the year, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Now, in looking at that, um, again, you, you notice that I said it, it, it's unnatural. He, he basically uh, just about uh, stipulates that you're going to take care of yourself. Because he says, let each of you look not only to your own interests. It's like, you're going to look to your own interests. But here's what I want you to add to that. But also to the interests of others. Now, if you'll remember, one thing and uh, last week we talked about is that, that one place our joy comes from is others-centeredness. And he continues along that line. Verse 5, Have this mind uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, down through the centuries, many have, have taught this. Have this mind in you, in you, um, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
uh, they've taught this by saying, look, here's your example. Christ is our example. Uh, what it's saying is, since he's our example, we should do that. Now, it's not wrong that he's our example. He is. He absolutely is. But I would suggest that this verse is more than about what would Jesus do, and then answering that and saying, okay, Jesus would do this, so I'm going to do this, because that's what Jesus would do. And, and here's why I want to tell you that it's more than that. Because you don't have to believe anything about what we're about to go into with Holy Week. You don't have to believe any of that to think Jesus was a good example. People that don't even believe in God, a lot of them think Jesus was a good example. Other religions typically will say, yeah, he lived a good life. He, he was a good example. So there's basically no argument with that. But I'm convinced it's more than that, and it's saying that, that you, we, can have this mind because as one who trusts in Christ alone for our eternal life, uh, we receive Christ into our hearts, and we have a union with Christ. He dwells within us, and because of that, then we can treat others in this way. Because it, it's not going to come natural for us. Nobody's humble enough to do that in an ongoing way. Except Christ. And Christ in us. So with that transition, then Paul moves forward really to summarize the work of Christ. So he said, here's all these things that, that you must do and toward one another, but then he's going to give the why and what Christ did, and it's going to make it so that there is no argument why anyone who is in Christ would not act that way toward one another. Now, many think that this section that I read and on down through verse 11 was either a poem or even um, there's some thought that it might have been a hymn that the early church sang in their, in their homes and as they gathered for worship. And I have no doubt that it would, be, it, it would be amazing in that context, and it very well might have been. But it also might have been that God's Holy Spirit just overwhelmed Paul at this point, and here he laid out some of the most magnificent doctrine of who Christ is and what he did that we see anywhere in the scripture. His nature and his work. Verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that term, in the form of, we're going to see three times in this passage. And I don't want you to think that, and, and that it should ever be interpreted as anything less than, uh, for instance, here where it says, was in the form of God. It should not be interpreted as anything less than he 
was and is God. The form of God doesn't lessen that at all. We'll see in a minute, he talks about him being in the form of man, and he was completely man. So uh, don't look at it in any way uh, being lessened. And notice it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Something he had to reach for and grab. Why? Well, because it was his. He didn't have to try to grasp it. He didn't have to say, that, well, there's God. I'd like to be, I'd like to have some of that. I'd like, I'd like some deity. It was his. He had it all. And he continued to have it all here on this earth. And he continues for eternity to be fully God. By the way, just doing a little theology. So everything it is to be God, Jesus is. Everything that it means to be God, the Father is. And everything that it is to be God, the Holy Spirit is. They are all equal. The same in substance. Equal in power and glory. Now they have different roles. But in terms of who they are. One God in three persons. So I hope you're beginning to see how this relates to what Paul's is saying about counting others more significant than yourself. Because here is Jesus, who didn't have to grasp to be God. He was fully God. He could have claimed his right. He could have said, I'm not, I'm not going to earth. I, I, you know, I am, I'm, I'm fully God. I'm not going to walk among those who sin I'm not going to die on a cross. I'm not going to be put in a tomb. He could have said that. And no one in the universe could have ever said, you're being selfish. Because that was completely his. And yet, instead of him, him grasping for his rights and saying, I've got my rights... Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The form of a servant, there it is again. So he was completely a servant, but that, uh, it, the next phrase explains what it means that he was a servant, born in the likeness of men. So he took on the form of a servant, and he was fully man. Remember, he was in the form of God, meaning completely and perfectly God. Here he's in the form of the servant, being completely man. 100% God, 100% man. From then on. That's speaking of the miraculous birth of Jesus. It's the incarnation. We focus on that, tend to focus on that more around Christmas when uh, incarnate, took on in the flesh, he took on flesh and uh, was, was born. But this is a doctrine that 
that is absolutely necessary for us to consider the impact of the cross as well. Now, I'm going to take a little side road here. I don't want us to get off the main road. But right here is a place that has uh, been controversial sometimes in church history. Let me explain. The phrase, he emptied himself. It is sometimes called the kenosis doctrine. Uh, Don't go tell your friends, yeah, we learned the kenosis doctrine in our church, because it's a heresy, okay? But I'm explaining what that is. The kenosis doctrine basically uh, took this term that he emptied himself, and their theory was that uh, when he uh, came to earth, when when he left heaven, when he was born, he quit being God. At that point, he was fully man, but he, he was no longer God. He was man throughout his life, his death, and uh, it wasn't until the resurrection and the, his exaltation, his ascension into heaven, that he took up his deity again, that he became God again. That's wrong. That's heresy. It contradicts uh, the rest of the scripture. And that's not what it means here. The idea of emptying himself. Yes, he he set aside some of what it means to be God, but he remained God. He took upon himself some limitations of space. He was in one place at a time, of knowledge, of power. Hebrews 4 says, He was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. He was without sin, though tempted as we are. Lightfoot said said he stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. But remember, he remained fully God. He did all of that willingly, remained fully God. And what he did is he didn't lose any of that He's self-limited. He didn't lose any of that. He had to to be born. He had to learn to walk and to, to, to read and to become a carpenter and all of those kinds of things. God doesn't have to learn those things, but he was fully man. But he, he set that aside uh, for uh, a time in terms of uh, all of the power that he had. But here's what I want you to notice with that. At every point, Christ did it. It wasn't done to him. He humbled himself. Nobody else humbled him. He wasn't cast out of heaven against his will. He didn't fall out of heaven. He stepped out of heaven and he stooped to do his work for our redemption. That's what he willingly did. And that took him to the cross. Which was that day, in that day, the most shameful, torturous way to die that they had invented. 
on, on March 29, 2018, uh, the Franciscan University of Steubenville posted a series of Facebook ads. It was for an online master's degree from that uh, university. And the next day, Facebook informed the school that they had rejected the ads for its offensive imagery. A Facebook moderator said this, your image, video thumbnail, or uh, video can't contain shocking, sensational, or excessively violent content. So what had they put up there? Well, the offending image that got them kicked off was the San Damiano cross. It's a piece of art, artwork that Francis of Assisi used to use. And it's basically not at all graphic. It's nonviolent, almost exultant picture of Jesus. Now Facebook backed off. They eventually reversed themselves. But in what they said initially, they stumbled into a truth. Because the cross was shocking. The cross was sensational in the most negative sense possible and the cross was excessively violent. Never has anyone so perfect, so holy, so innocent been executed in the way he was because there has never been anyone so perfect, so holy, and truly innocent. But even with all that, even with everything you've ever heard about how horrible uh, physically the death on the cross was and, and how horrible it must have been to, to watch from the outside, even with that, the greatest pain that Jesus experienced on the cross was bearing all of the sins of all of his people for all time, past, present for him, and future. That was his greatest pain when all of the wrath of God that all of them and all of us deserve was poured out on Jesus while he was on the cross. That was his greatest pain. And that marks the essential difference between Christianity and not only other world religions, but religion itself. Who would think to worship someone who was crucified? Religion is about getting to God, working your way to God. But religion keeps forcing that question to be asked. Have I done enough to please God? Have I done enough? 
And the answer is always, you haven't and you can't. No, you haven't done enough and you can't. But the cross, the cross says he has and he did. What he did on the cross was enough for anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. It was enough. Let's pray. You are glorious, Lord Jesus. You you did on the cross in taking our sin. You, You died the way we should have died after you had lived the way we were supposed to live. You are glorious. We give you all praise and we would ask that as we grasp that more and more, it will impact our own humility and how we treat others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.